the reading of the scriptures from Genesis 20, verses 1 to 18, the entire chapter. May God give us grace and faith, both in the reading and the hearing of his word from here in Genesis chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. He sojourned in Gerar. And Abram said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? He did not himself say to me, She is my sister. And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all of his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did these things? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech, because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And that's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I ask you again to join me in a time of prayer. Father, again, we are thankful for uh, your presence among us, your loving kindness to us, the gift of every spiritual blessings in heavens because of Christ and all that he has done for us. Again, in the laying down of his life for us and in conveying unto us uh, his very righteousness. Thank you for the gift of the Spirit who indwells us and the gift of faith in Christ. Thank you for giving us our daily bread, and we return a measure of that uh, and ask thy blessings upon our offering, not just 
financial, but of ourselves, our time, our talents, unto the uh, expansion of the kingdom. We ask for your blessings upon our homes, our families. Be kind and gracious in saving faith to our children and grandchildren. Watch over and keep us. Uh, We ask thy blessings upon those in the civil realm of government, that they would rule with wisdom and with the knowledge and understanding that uh, they rule under the good pleasure of God, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. We ask you to intervene and bring peace where there is war uh, for the sake of the elect in those places and their welfare. We ask this. In our weakness, give us strength. In our sickness, give us healing. In our confusion, wisdom. In our discouragement, hope. And now, Father, bless your word to us that it might be profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness that we might be complete, equipped for every good work. And we ask this in the name of him who has saved us, the eternal word, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thy will be done. Lord, hear our prayers. This is kind of like a rerun, isn't it? Haven't we seen this chapter before? Well, we have. It's interesting. Abraham retreats to a well-known haunt of his, as said to say, all of us on occasion do. And so we should learn from Abraham and God's grace in dealing with him. And uh, we should also, I think, as a implied warning, be very careful of presumption. Because God is always at work in our lives, moving us out of our old haunts uh, to conformity, to obedience to His will and the majesty of His eternal Son. But there's also something else uh, that's here that is much more than an old haunt. Uh, and that is the beauty of uh, the grace of God. Uh, not only in redeeming Abraham and redeeming each of us if we know Christ by faith, uh, but also in preserving Abraham as well as in preserving each of us by His grace. And in Abraham's case, as is true in each of our lives, even, even, sad to say, when we on occasion jeopardize uh, the faith and our witness. So God in uh, His grace preserves the promises of the covenant in spite of Abraham's compromise and grace uh, blesses him in spite of himself. Uh, It's good to see, I think, in all of this text the majesty of the grace of God in dealing with Abraham, but more importantly in his dealings with uh, each of us uh, through the greater covenant head who is Jesus Christ. Well, in verses 1 to 13, uh, God's grace preserves the promises of the covenant. Uh, We learn geographically that Abraham travels and settles in Gerar, which is in Philistia. And uh, not unlike chapter 12, uh, he, he feels threatened because of the beauty of his wife. And like there, he is afraid for his life, so he retreats to this old haunt that Abraham, that Sarah is his sister. It's very interesting that he retreats to this old haunt. It's it's half true, 
but it is still an act of deception on his part and a lack of trust and faith in God, uh, which you and I practice on occasion when we become afraid of what people might say about us or uh, in like manner uh, we compromise our faith. Uh, but the importance of this event, this geographic event, is we are right on the eve of God blessing Sarah with the son. And so the, the, the jeopardy that he's, that Abraham puts Sarah in is really remarkable. Now he doesn't know, he doesn't have Genesis chapter 21, he doesn't know what God is about to do, but you and I know what he's about to do. And so the, Jeopardy that he places Sarah in is all the more remarkable. And it is a reminder of, uh, while we are reading ancient history, it's also contemporary history. Uh, because you and I are always being tested. Satan is always attacking. It's exactly what's occurring here. And we're always afraid of what man may say about us. Ultimately, the essence of what uh, Abraham is fearful of. What men may do to him. So the promises of God are placed at risk. The uh, eternal covenant that he has made with Abraham. To have a son and to bless him with many sons. Sons as numerous as the stars of the sky. Ultimately fulfilled by Christ. Going to put that in jeopardy. So Abimelech takes Sarah into his harem. It's very interesting, uh, the name uh, Abimelech. I think it's an implied warning uh, to, uh, to Abraham and Sarah. Now the Hebrew, uh, it's really a compound name. Uh, Avi in the Hebrew is uh, my father. And then Melech is the word for king in the Hebrew text. So his name is literally my God is king. So he jeopardizes his uh, wife and he jeopardizes him before a man who's named uh, My God is King. Uh, to me, the alarm bells would have been uh, going off. But uh, again, all of us become a bit dull on occasion. Uh, Abraham is. Uh, I give him a couple of excuses that you and I don't have. Uh, Abraham does not have a complete Bible before him. He has revelation from God, but he doesn't have the Bible like we have. And neither does he have the full outpouring of the Spirit. I would affirm that Jesus is present in Abraham's life and the Spirit is present in Abraham's life as well, but not like Acts chapter 2. Uh, but you and I uh, have both and we should be all the more aware of danger and all the more aware that we must not jeopardize our faith for the fear of man. It's a very subtle, uh, Abimelech's name is a very subtle testimony to Abraham and Sarah. Uh, he used uh, deception as a means uh, to preserve their lives when they have something greater than deception, namely the promises of God. God has, on a number of occasions in our study of Genesis, rehearsed those promises to Abraham, reminded him of them, uh, but nonetheless, he fails, just like you and me on occasion. Uh, in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, he promises Abraham protection. He promises him many sons. 
And that should have kept him. And I would remind each of you the promises of God as you study the scriptures are there not just for you to memorize, but for you to hold dear. Because like Abraham, you're always going to be put in circumstances which are a threat to your faith. Uh, we know from the ancient Near East uh, that women uh, desired by the king would be brought into a harem and groomed in preparation for joining it. We also know from Scripture that deception is an unauthorized means to advance the kingdom. God does not need us to lie. He does not need us to equivocate. Don't be fearful of men. Fear God. Uh, always retreat to valid witness and your steadfast hope and assurance in God's promises and His ability to keep His own. So God doesn't need us to lie and He does not need us to engage in fabrications. And we must not jeopardize our faith or our witness because of the fear of man. So Abraham, if you think about it again, I remind you, is jeopardizing everything about the promise of God. Notice if she, if Sarah is taken into the harem formally, after being groomed, a woman would then become a former member of it. If she's taken into the harem formally, she cannot have a child by Abraham, thereby nullifying the promises of God. So the danger is real, the threat pronounced. The majesty of grace is you and I do not live in a closed system. Most uh, of our culture today believes that we live in a cold, closed system. There is no God. God does not intervene because there is no God, but you and I reject that. We live in an open system. And God can manifest His will and His presence at any time of His choosing and any time that He wills to do so. And so, God intervenes to protect His promises. And thereby, He intervenes to protect Sarah and Abraham. Why don't we turn, if we could, just momentarily to Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 10. I should read uh, verse 9. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. That is the God who is with you in every circumstance in life. Even when men are testing you and threatening you. And even when Satan attacks you, as he certainly will. But notice who our God is, verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done. Saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Uh, you know from your understanding of the Hebrew Bible that the end from the beginning is a merism. God declares it all. And so we can be confident with the riches of the greatness of assurance that the will of God will be established. And we need not fear man. Regardless of Abraham's perfidy, God is going to protect his covenant, which means protecting, albeit undeserved, both Abraham and Sarah. He's going to preserve the sacredness of their marriage. 
By the way, I think that's a testimony to each of us. The sacredness of marriage as it's established in Genesis chapter 2. God joined a man and a woman together to have children. The sacredness of marriage. Our country and our culture has trashed that. So, we're members of a church. We uphold it in its sacredness. very tragic in our culture that marriage is in decline and the world is redefining it. Uh, by the way, not only is the world redefining it, the evangelical church is redefining it. Uh, I read in the most current uh, edition of World Magazine that many evangelical churches are joining with the world in redefining marriage as an institution between a man and a woman. Why are they doing that? Ultimately, they're afraid of man. They're afraid of uh, being called names. They're afraid of the backlash of a corrupt pagan culture. may happen to us. In fact, reading the magazine, I was kind of struck by the fact that uh, churches uh, who hold to traditional marriage as derived from God's holy scripture, will probably at some point in the future be threatened in some manner or form. So what should we do? Change the vows? Change the recipients and participants of the vows? Absolutely not. Because we must not fear man. We must. As Abraham should have feared God in his word above all things. So, um, Sarah's jeopardized. The promises are jeopardized. God's going to act in grace. First, He's going to act. And secondly, it's the beauty of the grace of God. That we don't have to jeopardize our faith because of the fear of man. Because God is our ultimate protector. I'm not saying, of course, that Christians are not martyred, they are. But they live forever if they know the Savior. And in that sense, God is our ultimate protector. And grace always delivers its sons and daughters. So God comes to Abimelech in a dream and warns him. Look at Genesis chapter 20, verse 3. The Hebrew text is... uh, quite remarkable to me. It really begins, behold, you. Notice God is announcing a threat to the king. Behold, you are in a serious way of danger. It's the essence of the warning to Abimelech. The threat is you're a dead man. Everyone around you is a dead man because the woman that you have taken is another man's wife. Uh, something that's ironic here, the, the king, this pagan king, is uh, not a Christian, it's uh, not a believer like Abraham, or like you and me, uh, but he sees this revelation as something that is from God. And he fears God. He 
He's terrified of the warning. So he says in response to the warning of the man and the woman lied to me. And God affirms to him that they have put him in this circumstance. And indeed they have. But notice the common grace. God's common grace to a pagan king. Verse 6, I prevented you from touching her. God intervened. And I would remind each of you, God and Satan and sometimes the fear of man always puts us in awkward circumstances. And that will occur until the day that we die. We're always being tested. Satan is always attacking. And his minions join him in attacking us and threatening us. But God is always present. He prevents the king from touching Sarah. The the Hebrew Bible is much more pronounced. I know we don't uh, oftentimes take words literally, but uh, the literal uh, reading of the Hebrew Bible is, I did not give you to touch her. It is a reminder that God intervenes on behalf of His sons and daughters. You're going to face circumstances. You're not alone. God is with you. Behind the presence of God is the church. Uh, We should always be praying uh, for our members in the church. uh, For people that we know in the church that are being threatened, perhaps friends in different states or different countries. Uh, But we should also have the assurance that God is able And God does act to care for His own. Given the context and Sarah's beauty, it's a powerful illustration of God's sovereignty. I mean, think about it. This man was king. And in in his own way, he is a little sovereign over his entire kingdom. Everything was for him, including seemingly Sarah. Except God intervenes. I did not give you to touch her. He didn't touch her because of the actions of God preventing him. Remarkable illustration of God's sovereignty. His checkmating of an earthly king. As his superior, God commands the king to restore Sarah, verse 7. And then notice the phrase, lest you surely die. We've seen that before, haven't we? Anybody recognize where that phrase comes from? This is exactly Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. Do not eat the fruit of that tree, lest you surely die. In the Hebrew Bible, it's a, a, a double use of two words. The infinitive construct of die plus uh, a future tense of die. We don't translate it literally. We just simply say, lest you surely die. In other words, you're going to die without question. And so, Abimelech stores Sarah to her rightful husband and man, verse 14. And the marriage is protected and the promise untainted. And so, we should never jeopardize our faith, our witness because of the fear of man. That's the takeaway from the recent article in Word, uh, World Magazine. I, I don't know if any of you take World Magazine, but um, 
Lutherans. So it's a worthwhile read because many evangelical churches are compromising their faith because of the fear of man. We don't need to be afraid of man. We need to fear the Lord. And the church is losing its way. We must not lose our way because of who God is. And again, I remind you, be very careful of presumption. Uh, You and I have a very high view of the grace of God, the sovereign grace of God. Uh, But we must walk by faith and obedience to his word. In verses 14 to 18, God blesses Abraham in spite of himself. Just like he blesses you in spite of yourself. He keeps you and preserves you. He withdraws none of His promises from you. Even when you jeopardize your witness. It's the grace of God. It's a warning to us not to presume upon His grace, uh, to quicken our study of Scripture and theology and history and to prepare ourselves uh, for the threats that will certainly come. But nonetheless, God withholds nothing from us in the greatness of our salvation. And so how does the king respond? He enriches Abraham and Sarah with sheep, cattle, servants, and a thousand pieces of silver. The presents are offered for the potentiality of violating Sarah. Uh, he, Abimelech calls it a covering. Translated a vindication to preserve her reputation. In other words, the king is telling his entire kingdom that he did not touch Sarah. As evidence in the expense that he goes to and these gifts that he showers upon Abraham and Sarah, even though they are the ones that created the circumstance. Public display. Sarah's reputation is intact. By the way, one of the greatest things you have in your life, besides your witness, is your reputation. Because it's a witness to the greatness of your God that you don't have to lie, cheat, or steal. Because your God will care for you. Preserve it. The purity of your witness. It's a great testimony. I wish I had learned it earlier in my life. But we should all learn it and rehearse it. That God is able to care for us irrespective of circumstances. And we should embellish our reputation befitting the majesty of Scripture and the character of our great and only Redeemer. And then, in response to the generosity of the king, God opens the wombs of the king's house, which he has closed fast. Notice again, uh, verse 18. For the Lord had closed fast. Uh, This too is the uh, same construct of Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, and uh, previously in our text here. 
there's the infinitive uh, plus the perfect tense of the verb. Closed fast. We don't translate it literally. Uh, to close, he closed. Uh, we translate it as it should be. He slammed it shut and welded it over ten times so that no woman could have a child in that kingdom because of what God has done. So think about the irony of that. If he closed all the wombs of the king's court and now opens them, what can he do for Sarah? And boom! Chapter 21. It's exactly what he's going to do. The majesty of God. He can open and close. And by the way, that applies way beyond conception. He opens and closes the door to his church because he is the sovereign. If you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, it's because he opened your heart. If you have not, take heed. Take the warning. Ask him to open your heart because only he can. He opened and closed. Sarah is childless, but God can change that, can he not? It is will. And he certainly is about to do just that in chapter 21. And so we should never jeopardize our reputation or our witness or our faith because of the fear of man. The broader truth of all of this is that the witness of Scripture is that we must not jeopardize our faith or our witness because of the fear of man. And over and over in Scripture, we're taught that. The things that man can do to us are more often than not a venue to promote compromise or to remain true. It's a clear record of the saints. I remind you from a couple of Old Testament Scriptures. Book of Esther. Mordecai tells Esther that God has placed her in the king's harem at the precise time to act on behalf of the people of God, to protect the covenant people of God. He tells her, you're not there. You didn't win the beauty contest out of sheer chance in your physical beauty. You won that contest because God was working to place you where he placed you. Notice Esther chapter 4, verse 14. Mordecai warns her that she is where she is by divine providence. By the way, our world is filled, and certainly the universities and the entire pagan academy, is filled with the notion that we live by time and chance. That is a direct confrontation to the vitality of our understanding of God. We live by His goodwill and His intervention. And there is no chance, there is no luck, because there is God. Notice what Mordecai says to Esther. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have attained to royalty for such a time as this. 
You are where you are in life, ladies and gentlemen. Because God placed you there for such a time as this. So be a witness. Protect your reputation, the beauty, the majesty of your sanctification. And don't fear man. Fear God. And how does Esther respond to this warning from Mordecai? You remember, don't you? I'm going to go uninvited to the presence of the king. If I perish, I perish. That's faith. That's setting her side, her fear of the king, trusting the sovereignty of God. If I perish, I perish. If you lose your job, you lose your job. If you lose a friend, you lose a friend. God will always provide. Daniel chapter 3, the three colleagues of Daniel will not deny their faith and commit idolatry. They're threatened with death. They tell the emperor, God is able to deliver us, and even if he does not, we will not worship or serve your idol. That should be the response of all evangelical churches today. We will not compromise a divine institution. In the book of Hebrews, some in the church are considering defecting from the faith because of suffering. Uh, Probably, I think, even though I cannot uh, be emphatic, uh, because of uh, economic persecution. The author gives them many reasons not to defect from the faith, even when it may cost them their livelihood. And one of them is very majestic. And very particular. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Let your character be free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you. I will never forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? You and I have that text. Abraham did not. We should be all the more uh, responsive in the courage of our witness. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, our Savior is called faithful witness. Why is that? Because he never compromised. Throughout his sojourn upon the earth, the religious institution of the nation of Israel attempted as mightily as it could to get him to compromise his calling from God. He refused. Because he feared his heavenly father more than their threats. So he's called a faithful witness. In the extremity of his testing with death upon the cross, He refused to compromise. And thus he is the faithful witness. Not as a historic figure. Certainly he is that. But as a witness to each of us. To be a faithful witness. Our Savior never broke. Becomes part of an exhortation to two of the churches. 
that John writes about in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 3. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested. You will have tribulation for ten days. Remember, that's an allusion to Daniel. Tribulation for ten days. Not a literal number. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Chapter 2, verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And behold, hold fast my name. Do not, you did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Allusion to Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Antipas was threatened. They killed him. He is called my witness, my faithful one. It's what you and I are to aspire to by the grace of God because of the outpouring of the Spirit in our hearts who should fill us with many things, one of which which is courage and the constant reminder not to jeopardize our faith because of the fear of man. The godless will always rail against us with threats and invective. And one thing is certain to be sure, in the end times we should expect more persecution. I was, I was somewhat taken aback reading uh, World Magazine and many evangelical churches fearful over um, the threats that they might uh, receive from the alternative lifestyle community. Fearful. The Bible tells us that in the last days, the threats will become more pronounced. Our response should be, bring it on. God will take care of us. We should fear God more than man. I saw something of this in a personal way. In a devotion I've been reading, there were three students at Hampton Sydney College in Virginia in the early part of the 19th century who were cowered by the godlessness that was present on the campus. And because they were cowered, they went into the forest to sing and to pray so that no one would hear them there, to be sure. Uh, and again, I understand the fear because uh, students on the campus were godless and would attack them and threaten them to cower them. And so they retreat to the forest to sing and to pray. Three men. Eventually, they retired to one of their rooms. So they screwed up their courage and said, the heck with the forest. Just go to our room. We'll shut the door. No one will hear us. Well, they were heard by some in a mob form shouting angry vilifications. Threatening to harm them. To break the door down to get at them. Think about this. The timing's incredible. It's not unlike our day. 1700s, really? Persecution? Indeed. Because it's always present. Never be absent. Because of the uh, anger of the mob, the president of the university was called. Uh, and he was a Christian. And the three men purified his own faith. He took up their cause and thus began the second great awakening in our country. 
Because God is able to intervene. He can act. He can bring revival at will. That's what we should be praying for, for God to act, for God to revive, to purify the church. I'd remind you, revival always begins with the church. The president of the university was a Christian. He was just a bit coward. But three, strengthen his faith and his courage. He takes a stand. Revival begins. We need to lose our fear of man and what man can do to us. Because our God is king. Not Abimelech. Not a president or a prime minister or a supreme court. But the court of heaven that always takes care of its own. And therefore we should always be courageous and remain loyal to Him because He is greater than all of our enemies put together throughout the entire history of civilization. And He is our gracious Heavenly Father through our great and only Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who will protect us and see us to the end. Let that be our courage.